Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We're your two Red Rider BB guns of redundant, ridiculous remembrances. <laughs> I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog, and we're going to shoot your eye out with facts. <laughs> <laughs> Putting the proverbial horse ahead of the cart there, but that's right, we are talking about one of the single greatest entries in the holiday movie canon, the comedy so nice they broadcast it twice. <laughs> And then three times, and then 12 times (laughs) (laughs) at Christmas. That's right. We're talking about the Christmas story. What do you say about the Christmas story, man? It's so good. Is it the or uh? I should know this. (laughs) It's the, right? No, okay. We're going to find out live on air. It's a Christmas (laughs) story? uh, I called it the Christmas. Oh, wait. No, I did know that, actually. Uh, Okay. Okay, great. (laughs) That's right. We're talking about a Christmas story. A movie so beloved and ubiquitous, we completely forgot which article is appended to it. Uh, but that does not diminish my love for it. It's one of my dad's favorite movies of all time. It's a big dad movie, yeah. yeah I think dads see themselves in the old man in this movie. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Fond memories of just leaving this on a loop, uh, on yeah. its loop every year. And like just you have one, As we'll find <laughs> out. Just wandering into the living room and catching 20 minutes of it at a clip. Um I, you yeah. know what? I can barely remember if I've ever actually sat down and watched this start to finish. I think I've, I've definitely seen it all dozens of times, but well, never start to finish. As we will cover, I don't think they started the loop thing until the late 90s. So at some point in the early 90s, we sat down and watched it. But yeah, I mean, its preferred format is, of course, watching it 20 minutes at a climb for 24 straight hours. <laughs> But you like it, though, right? Oh, I love this movie. I love how yeah. begrudgingly sentimental it is. Like, it gives mm-hmm. it a heart without the the saccharine aftertaste. And it's also, like, a really weird movie. Like, 
Mm-hmm. Why is there a bunny suit? Why is there a leg lamp? Why does the kid have yellow eyes? Even though I don't some think of the does. iconography in it, like yeah. watching back, watching it back, you're like, this is borderline Lynchian. Yes. Like, like if, yeah. If you it's, put all of that with like disquieting ambient industrial music under it instead of I mean, schmaltz, it is a David Lynch movie. You know, the dogs running through the house. Yeah, even at the Chinese restaurant at the end, it's like a racer head when they chop the head off the duck. Yes, exactly. Oh, that's so funny. And the creepy Santa. I mean, you're right, but it, I mean, it's so great. And, you know, the phrase, a major award is huge <laughs> in my family lexicon. I mean, fragile, that must be Italian. That that joke kills yep. every time. Oh, yeah. Incredible success ratio. And you know what? This movie probably introduced a whole generation, multiple generations, in fact, of kids to the concept of safety goggles when they play with their BB guns. Do kids play with BB guns anymore? Did you have a BB gun? Did video games completely um, kill that? I had a BB gun. No, no, no can was safe. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. We went paintballing a couple times. But oh that's wow, about it. oh that's much more more. High, no, yeah. we were a big lawn mowing family, and so like it really pissed us all off when, uh, when uh, the, they would end up in the lawn and go spinging out of the riding mower at high speeds. So, but yeah, this movie is just like your grumpy misanthropic uncle who complains about everything, but then gives the most touching toast at a Christmas <laughs> dinner. I don't know where that analogy comes from. I don't have an analog for that in my real life, but just go with it. <laughs> you, you have me. That's that. You know what? That's true. That is true. <laughs> well, from the cultishly adored Hepcat radio personality who authored the source material to the director who went from a Christmas-themed slasher to a raunchy sex comedy to this <laughs> to the weird also-ran beverage that inspired the iconic hmm. leg lamp, here's everything you didn't know about A Christmas Story. Gene Parker Shepard Jr. was born in 1921 on the south side of Chicago before moving to Indiana, specifically Hammond, Indiana, where he graduated from Hammond High School in 1939, and that's where A Christmas Story is ostensibly set. Uh, he fictionalizes Hammond as Homan in uh, in all of his stories, and, and all of his short stories are basically drawn from his life growing up in the southeast neighborhood of Hammond called Hessville. Uh, His early jobs included mail carrier in a steel mill, which is the most Midwest ever. Uh, Amateur radio DJ. He was a ham radio enthusiast. Uh, Returned to it in his dotage years. And uh, I believe once said, once a ham, always a ham of his time. (laughs) And uh, he served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps during uh, WW2. The big one. (laughs) Uh, he began working in broadcast radio following his service. Uh, this was in 1945 on WJOB in Hammond. He had uh, time on the radio in Toledo and Cincinnati and a brief stint in Philadelphia before landing at WOR Radio in New York City in 1955, where most people probably know him from. Uh, he was just famous for being one of these like fast-talking radio uh basically a garrison keeler if he was like a beatnik era guy wickedly sarcastic would just ramble and tell these long stories about his his child and everything and and do weird stuff like he had this stunt where he made up a book called i libertine because he was talking about how easy it was to manipulate the bestseller list so he made up a fake book he made up a fake author named uh frederick r ewing 
and mobilized enough people, listeners of his show, to actually land this fictional book on the New York Times bestseller list. How? I don't later. understand. I, people would call in, call in and ask for it or call books. Basically, he was encouraging Whoa. people to call in to book distributors and like bookstores and be like, do you have I, Libertine by Frederick R. Ewing? And the title of his um, his biography that was written about him is uh, Excelsior, <laughs> you fathead. Which was a phrase that if you if someone asked who published it, which the bookstores naturally would, that you were supposed to tell them, Excelsior, you fathead. <laughs> so enough people, based on the strength of this, called into bookstores and then subsequently those bookstores called publishers and called distributors that this book, solely through word of mouth, ended up on the bestseller list, which was the entire point of the, of the bit, was what he was trying to prove. So such was his, his influence. The 50s. <laughs> yeah, right. Shepard was wildly influential for his improvisatory, pseudo-beat poet stream of consciousness radio works. Steely Dan co-founder Donald Fagan paid tribute to him in a piece in Slate in 2008, and Jerry Seinfeld said on a Seinfeld commentary track that he, quote, learned how to be funny from Gene Shepard. And Shepard was occasionally described as the inventor of talk radio, which I guess, given all we know about him so far, kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. His WR stint lasted two decades, which is astonishing because I have never heard of him before this. (laughs) Uh, And usually he started every episode with 15 minutes of him reading bizarre news stories before segueing into improvised poetry and spiels and short stories and just kind of pranks. Whatever, yeah, and pranks, <laughs> whatever was on his mind, really. And the jazz beatnik tastemaker crowd cottoned onto him uh, purely on the basis of his radio work, because again, it, it really bore a lot of resemblance to kind of beat poetry, improvisation We're stuff jazz. that was going on. Ha, yeah, cha, exactly. cha, cha. Like Ken Nordine. Do you ever, yeah, do you ever listen to Ken Nordine? No. Uh, he's a, he was a big Tom Waits guy. He would, he had this thing called word jazz where he would, uh, like there's like stuff of him on, uh, with Steve Allen on the tonight show where Steve Allen's like playing jazz piano and Ken Nordine's just kind of like narrating noir stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of like, Hey, like Like all the Tom Waits, all the like drunk, early drunk (laughs) Tom Waits stuff before he gets into Beefheart territory of like, um, you know, uh, when he's doing like emotional weather report and some of those like like really heavily spoken word things are it, Ken Nordine was a huge guy for him. So such was the milieu of the time. Very interesting. Uh, he raised money for John Cassavetti's movies and he eulogized Jack Kerouac when he died in 1969. He's buried in Lowell, Massachusetts, near where I grew up. And he was oh. reportedly the inspiration for Shel Silverstein writing the song that Johnny Cash later made famous, A Boy Named Sue. Uh, supposedly, when Steve Allen retired as the first host of The Tonight Show in 1957, he suggested Gene Shepard as a replacement. So... A storied past for this man who wrote the stories that A Christmas Story was based on. Also, the jazz nerd me would be remiss if I didn't mention that at some point, Shepard became friends with legendary bassist and composer Charles Mingus. Uh, Mingus had his kind of one of his many pet projects with his own music was combining written word and and music and poetry. Um, There's a record called The Weary Blues that's him doing the music and Langston Hughes reading his poetry. Uh, and he wanted Joni Mitchell to adapt some of T.S. Eliot's poems uh, later in his life. And that's what led to the Joni album um, where she does Mingus compositions. So before the, so all of which is just that there's a there's a Mingus record called The Clown, which has this truly horrifying cover art of Mingus as like Pagliacci. Um, he looks more like John Wayne Gacy than Pagliacci. Ah. But uh, there's a track on there called The Clown that is just um, 
Mingus loved the radio show and just had Gene Shepard come down and improvise this narration around this uh, this jazz tune. Give me a thousand guesses. I never would have guessed that this was the gen. This was the mind that birthed a Christmas story. Oh, right? given everything I said about what a weird movie it is, yeah. I guess it kind of makes sense. Well, beginning in June 1964, Gene Shepard started porting his radio stories over to Playboy magazine for publication, honing in on those that depicted his childhood in Hammond, Indiana, which he fictionalized, as you said, as the town of Holman. And Playboy founder Hugh Hefner reportedly said that Shel Silverstein encouraged his friend Gene Shepard to turn his radio stories into prose, but initially Gene Shepard resisted, saying that he wasn't a writer. Uh, Hugh Hefner would beg to differ. He published 23 of Shepard's stories in Playboy, and he often would play a Christmas story late at night in the Playboy Mansion, which I find weirdly horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Given the, what we've since learned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shel Silverstein wore Gene Shepard down by recording the stories that he broadcast on the radio and transcribing them for him before sitting down with him and trying to work them into a proper short story. Incredibly touching mm. display of friendship and belief in his creative power. I think that's wonderful. We should all have a friend like that. A Christmas Story loosely throws together five stories that Shepard had written for radio and published in Playboy and uh, also in his novels. Four of these stories were collected in Shepard's 1966 novel, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, which is a great <laughs> title. Uh, the fifth story, the story of the old man's war with the neighbor's dog, the Bumpus Hounds. <laughs> the, lexicon, the lexicon of this movie is so yeah. great. The Bumpus Hounds. Uh, that appeared in a later book that he published in 1970, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. <laughs> this guy has uh, a gift for titles. He really does. Parsing whether these stories are fact or fiction is not really for us to do here. He famously resisted any attempt by people to pin down what exactly was real and what was embellished. There's a rabid fan base for this guy online, and a lot of people have successfully, by doing weird stuff like looking up Hammond, Indiana high school yearbooks, pinned down specific characters from these stories as existing. Um, his father was uh, confirmed by the 1930 federal census record to be a cashier at the Borden Milk Company. And his younger brother was indeed named Randy. So at least at least that much was true. I can't um, put my arms down. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Uh, uh, trans I don't have a segue for this. The film's director, New Orleans native Bob Clark. He grew up poor and initially majored in philosophy at college, scoring a football scholarship in Michigan where he played quarterback. And then he moved on to the University of Miami, both of which are football schools, uh, where he studied theater and later turned down offers to play professional football. His film career began somewhat inauspiciously with a 1966 adaptation of The Emperor's New Clothes, starring an on-the-decline John Carradine. Uh, by the early 70s, he was doing horror films, 1972's Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. But it was in 1968 that, driving around Miami on the way to a date, he heard Gene Shepard on the radio telling the story of Flick being triple-dog-dared into putting his tongue on a metal pole in the dead of winter. He listened to that story so intently while circling the block repeatedly that he was 45 minutes late for his date, who did not appreciate this. Uh, he had told himself then and there, according to this great Vanity Fair oral history of the film, I will do a movie of this man's work, and it would take 12 years to come to fruition. 
According to the New York Post, Shepard had already turned down several offers to film uh, his stories, including one from Disney when he was approached by Clark in 1973. So five years after hearing it on the radio and 10 years before the movie came out. Can you imagine if Disney made a Christmas story? That would really suck. Ugh, yeah. No, I can't. In 83, wasn't Katzenberg in uh, power there? Uh, no, uh, I don't think yet. Katzenberg. Okay. Uh, when did Jeffrey cut? No, we're not doing this. <laughs> Stay focused. <laughs> happy uh, place, happy place. Happy place, happy place. Clark uh, did make a very influential 1974 film called Black Christmas, which is generally considered one of the first slasher movies. Hugely influential on, on the films that would follow, especially Halloween. John Carpenter has talked about what an influence that movie was on on Halloween, not just in the holiday title. Funny to me that the A Christmas Story guy went from Black Christmas to his other biggest film, a film he co-wrote, produced, and directed, the gross-out comedy Porky's. Very personal project for him, right? Apparently, about loosely based on, like the Shepard stuff, loosely based on his own youth. That movie has been, I think, so eclipsed by its descendants, most notably American Pie and everything, mm. that, all the American Pie imitators, that it is easy to forget that that was the third most successful movie of 1982, briefly one of the top grossing films of all time in the U.S., and also briefly the most successful comedy in film history. Wow. And it, that got him the juice to get Christmas Story adapted. Uh, I he either I've heard various accounts. The studios either wanted him to do Porky's Two, which he eventually did do, or another horror movie. And he said, "Okay, if you'll give me money to do a Christmas Story." So MGM turned their pockets inside out because, as we will discuss later, they were not in a good place in the mid eighties. Uh, gave him four point four million for this. Um, and according to a twenty thirteen book on the making of Christmas Story by Cassine Gaines. Clark was so eager to make this movie that he gave up his director's fee and tossed 150k of his own money into the budget. Uh, Shepard himself, along with Bob Clark and Shepard's third wife, Lee Brown, wrote the screenplay. By this point, Shepard had left WOR in 1977 and uh, would later be openly contemptuous of his time in radio, calling it just another gig. <laughs> Has he liked anything that he's done? No, he didn't like anything at all. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Another thing that Gene Shepard was openly contemptuous of was the film's title. He said, I fought it all the way down the line. He's talking to the New York Post. It was based on a story called Red Rider Nails the Cleveland Street Kid. And I could accept that was too long for a marquee. But my original title was Santa's Revenge. <laughs> That's a, that is a good title. They, That's why yeah. he liked the Christmas slasher movies so much. Right, yeah. sick. Uh, Shepard continued, we argued over dozens of titles, then finally settled on Boy's Life after the magazine. Eh. <laughs> it turned out that Steven Spielberg owned it. Of course he did. It was the original title of E.T., and he refused to give it up. Finally, by osmosis, and this is what causes Watergates, you settle on one that nobody can get mad at, but nobody likes. A incredible, story. incredible quote. The man was a quote machine. Jeans, yeah, well, years on radio, free associating. I did not know that was the original title for the shooting title for E.T. Was it a real working title or was it like a like a dummy title like Titanic was Planet Ice? Oh, it might have been the like it might have been reports. the code name for the shooting. But uh. you can, I guess you can find this this script up there still under the name A Boy's Life. The IRL Shepherds lived in various places around Hammond, Indiana during the 1930s. They moved into their house at 2907 Cleveland Street in 1935, which is a 
slightly over 1,000 square foot bungalow dating from the early part of the century. And there is a carving in the attic containing the autographs 17 years old, Gene Shepard, February 18th, 1939, and 15 years old, Randall, Randy, Shepard, February 28th, 1939. The only reason I mention that is because they scouted 20 cities for production, finally setting on Cleveland for the exteriors and Toronto for the interiors. They did film during the winter in Ohio, but there was no snow that year, and consequently they had to import snow in from ski resorts hundreds of miles away or use snowblowers to cover up the trees. And at that time, apparently the technology was not great, and they had to run these things for 24 hours to get enough snow to shoot in. Um, And then when the weather warmed up and neither of those became options, they used potato flakes, an old Hollywood trick. That I didn't know. Oh, yeah. Dried potato flakes. That's what they used to use on TV as well. Or shredded vinyl (laughs) to dress the sets, both of which don't particularly sound very EPA friendly. Uh, and then, in the, even worse, in the scene where Ralphie and his brother are fleeing uh, Scott Fucker, S- Scott <laughs> Farkas, in the scene where Ralphie and his brother and friends are fleeing the bully Scott Farkas, I'm not that keeping is that firefighters foam that they are trucking through. So, man, remember when the Ohio River caught fire? <laughs> that probably wasn't related to the filming of this movie, but it also probably didn't help. Supposedly, the decision to film in Cleveland came down to the department store Higby's, which is a real-life department store that allowed them to film there at nights and left its Christmas decorations up for them, as did a lot of the other parts of the town they shot around. I always assumed that was a fake department store because it sounds like such a made-up name, but it is real. Uh, The place that Higby's used to be is in the center of town. It's now a giant casino in Cleveland where I've actually been on several occasions. It's actually kind of cool. You can sort of tell it was an old department store because there's these huge atriums and Mm. massive escalators, which might be the ones that uh, Ralphie and his family went up on. The house that plays the family's home in the film, in the role of itself, was built in 1895 and it was auctioned off on eBay in 2004 for 150 grand. You can't get a damn studio apartment in Cleveland in 2022 for 150 grand. The yep. new the new owners restore it's like the Silence of the Lambs house that's been like vacant for years that every every 2 years like clockwork when I w- when I was working in news that that house would pop up again. People would be like, "You can buy Buffalo Bill's house." And everyone was like, "No, thank you." <laughs> Wait, really? I've never heard that. Uh yeah, oh, it's that's upside, amazing. Uh Oh, I was wrong. It did sell. It sold last year. The three-story Victorian sold for 290000 Periopolis, Pennsylvania, just an hour from Pittsburgh. You going to turn it into an Airbnb? <laughs> well, funny you should mention that because the new owners of the Christmas Story House restored it, built a museum across the street, and uh, they have turned it into a foundation that uh, preserves the house and the neighborhood. They sell a two-night Uh, stay there around the holidays every year and funnel the proceeds back into preserving this historic home and they sell a lot of christmas story stuff and a lot of the trivia we found out from this episode comes from their site oh cleveland loves that house like (laughs) i was in cleveland in the spring and like that's very high on all the like cleveland tourism stuff like year round like people flock out to this little suburb and and go check out this house and yeah they redid the interiors to match the way it was in the movie even though those were filmed on sets in uh toronto Toronto. (laughs) uh became a designated landmark in cleveland and has welcomed over a million guests since opening in 2006 
And did you hear about this? There was some news story earlier this year about the guy who played Grover Dill, who's like the little toady kid who pals around with the bully. Uh, he was trying to get a consortium of ex-Christmas story actors together to buy it, I guess. But then I, I'm kind of unclear as to what happened, but he got into some kind of physical fight with the current owner of the house, like outside of the house. Uh, Gene Shepard really would have loved that. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's perfect. I mean, this is such a dysfunctional family. It's such a perfect uh, story for it. But uh, yeah, like TMZ did several stories on this. So I'm not really sure what the latest is with the ownership of that house. But uh, interestingly, the actor who played Randy, who plays Ralphie's little brother, he actually moved in to the Christmas Story house decades later in 2010. So this would have been 23 years after the movie. Uh, the actor's name is Ian Petrella, and he moved into the house after quitting acting to pursue graphic design, and he befriended the owner of the house and asked if he could reside there for a few months, and he moved into the third floor and gave tours and hosted meet and greets with visitors. Brilliant idea, because it, you're adding value to this guy's house. He can charge some extra bucks to the tours because you're getting an actual tour from, you know, Ralphie. I'm, I'm honestly shocked more places don't have that as like a bit. Like, they're like, like, like you're a struggling hey, actor. Movie here. Yeah. yeah, move back into this place and give tours and it'll be like a, a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, free room and board and maybe even some, some extra kickback, too. I don't know. <laughs> I thought you were going to say maybe some uh, mouth stuff. <laughs> Um, keeping that. <laughs> As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself, but we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. 
Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. A neat trick that uh, Clark pulled with the child actors was to cut the floors out of the set so that the camera would be down at the kid's height, around four feet, looking up at all of the adults, um, rather than the perspective of the adults looking down at the kids. So you were literally in the kid's uh, uh, perspective for these movies. Muppet Babies and Charlie Brown style. (laughs) Yes, Muppet Babies, an unheralded influence on this film. Um, the director of Black Christmas frequently cited Muppet Babies as one of the most, uh, moving on, a fun way to tell which scenes are filmed where. When they're filmed at the Cleveland house, the drapes are open in the living room, but on the sound stage, the drapes are closed, which is funny because in some of those, uh, scenes that they did film in Toronto, you can see one of Toronto's trademarked red trolleys driving past in the, uh, in the background. Um, Victoria School in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, where the school uh, exteriors were shot along with the tree lot scene. Uh, as mentioned earlier, this film was made on a shoestring budget, which actually turned out in their favor because in the DVD commentary, Ralphie actor Peter Billingsley noted that uh, the studio was barely involved <laughs> and that, that they had a ton of freedom working on it. He said, unlike other studio films where you couldn't change a word of the script, studio was like, ah, you're making that weird radio play Christmas movie. Do what you want. Just uh, don't let it cost too much. But the, the film is remarkably period accurate. Uh, the cars, phones, the decoder ring, the radio. Um, I, there was, I think Peter Billingsley talks about at one point, he was like talking to a woman and he mentioned he was an actor. And he was like, yeah, I was in A Christmas Story. And she's like, you can't be. You're too young. That was filmed in the 40s. Whoa. <laughs> neglecting to realize that they I guess color film they would not have been shooting in color in the 1940s well, uh, yeah, I mean Wizard of Oz was 39 yeah that's true that's true that's true I stand corrected not the first time Wizard of Oz would come up in this one of the things that was not real was the life buoy soap bar that was made of wax but it was a real brand. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, the, the but they did not put actual soap in that kid's mouth, which is funny because as we'll talk about in a second, they put these kids through the damn ringer. Yeah. Uh, Billingsley said his real life mom actually used that uh, that punishment a lot, and uh, Clark chimes in and he's like, "Yes, life buoy was known for being the worst tasting." All right, we got to talk about sweet, sweet Peter Billingsley, the kid who played Ralphie. He was apparently the very first kid out of thousands that they auditioned for the role. He told BuzzFeed in 2013, director Bob Clark said, for whatever reason, that I was the first kid he saw. But he thought, well, geez, you can't just hire the first person you see. Uh, I read they also auditioned Sean Astin from The Goonies and Will Wheaton, who played the kid from Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, Wesley? Wesley Crusher. Yep. Wesley Crusher. Thank you. Um, Peter Billingsley had worked as an actor since he was two and a half, and at the time he was known mostly for a series of Hershey's Syrup commercials in which he played Messy Marvin. But he also had starred in some big Hollywood productions in the early 80s, including the movie Paternity opposite Burt Reynolds, and also an ensemble comedy called Honky Tonk Freeway, and as a correspondent for the variety show Real People. 
which I am not familiar with. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought you'd be familiar with the most of them. No. But Peter Billingsley is interesting to me also because he's related to Beaver Cleaver's mom from Leave it to Beaver, Barbara Billingsley. I think he's like the cousin of her husband or something. Hmm. But that's notable to me, not only as a mid-century media obsessive, but also because Barbara <laughs> Billingsley, Beaver Cleaver's mom, has my birthday, December 22nd. Oh, I love how they got Peter Billingsley to play the elf Ming Ming in Elf. They kept, you yes. know, kept him on the uh, Christmas. He movie is he track. is he is apparently tight with um, Vince Vaughn and those guys. He like works as a producer on their films. Oh wow! Yeah. Moving on, uh, sweet sweet Peter Billingsley. It was really cold. <laughs> he told BuzzFeed of shooting in Cleveland and Toronto in the winter. And the child labor laws back then, if you didn't live in California, you didn't have reciprocity with the state's laws. And I think Ohio and Canada were very lax. So you worked a lot of hours. <laughs> and while we're on the topic of abusing kid actors, for the scene in which Ralphie imagines himself fighting Black Bart's gang with his Red Rider BB gun, he spits tobacco juice a couple times. Which was real. The prop man, either not thinking or not caring, just gave the 12-year-old Peter Billingsley some red man chewing tobacco. Chaw, mm. for those in the know. Uh, and within minutes, the 12-year-old actor was sweating. And then he said, we shut down for an hour or so. He's talking to Vanity Fair. When I just had to lie down on the couch. I guess after this, they realized that maybe giving a 12-year-old chewing tobacco was a bad idea. And for the rest of the scene, they gave him ground-up raisins to chew on. Mm. Yeah, that'll work. Uh, and in case you were wondering, for the iconic hubcap scene, Billingsley <laughs> told BuzzFeed, oh, they had me say f <laughs> <laughs> on all the takes. I think we looped in the word fudge on top of it so you could get the mouth to curl to the consonant of K instead of D. I had been in Hollywood for a long time at that point. It wasn't the first time I'd heard it or probably said it. <laughs> And yes, he still has a lot of the stuff from the film, including the pink bunny suit and the rhinestone cowboy outfit that he fights off Black Bart's gang with. He also still has the Red Rider BB gun and the glasses that he broke, which were his own in real life. <laughs> um, I mean, that BB gun, you know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, belongs in a museum. Uh, it the museum the museum there was a real life black bart i just wanted this this i there's one reason i'm mentioning this he was an englishman who came to the states with his family he served in the union army and moved out west started a mine in montana some men from the wells fargo bank offered to buy his claim and he refused at which point they choked off the water supply to the mine he wrote in a letter to his wife of this incident i am going to take steps and proceed to become a famous outlaw specializing in robbing Wells Fargo stagecoaches. So I just had to completely mention that dude's career and the incredible line, I am going to take steps. <laughs> and then I don't think she ever heard from him again. That was like the last. She didn't hear about him until he was in the news for robbing stuff. Can you imagine that being the last thing you hear from your spouse and the next time you see them, they're a, they're a bank robber. Rules. Moving on up the familial tree, Jack Nicholson showed interest in playing the role of the old man, but Bob Clark pushed for Darren McGavin because I believe largely Jack Nicholson was making like a mill, two mill movie at this point. But still, I, did you turn down Nicholson? He would have eaten the life <laughs> yeah. boy soap. This was like three years removed and from the, the set. Three, like three years removed from The Shining too, so he would have been bringing that energy to it. Oh, 
Um, he improvised that string of uh, of profanity in the furnace scene. Um, he told... Fucking give us a taste. <laughs> uh... My, my favorite part is when it comes back up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the first draft had actual swearing in it, he told a Cleveland newspaper. But then we came up with the idea of using nonsense words for the swearing. I had a great time doing that. The English knows he's the uh, the English. The audience knows he's cursing a blue streak, but it's just harmless noise. Conversely, the gibberish that Ralphie is yelling when he's beating up Scott Farkas was scripted. So the yin and yang of movie gibberish there. What is cursing a blue streak? You know, going blue tonight. Why, why is blue synonymous with bad words? You know, Jordan, that's a great question. Because there's a blue dot to cover up nudity in, you know, movies and TV shows and stuff. So I don't know why blue is such a... I thought red. Red's a very suggestive color. Hold, please. But blue is the warmest color. <laughs> the Oxford English Dictionary contains... An 1890 reference to the phrase blue stories. Hmm. There you go. As early as 1900. Let us propose to celebrate Chaucer by publicly reading some of his bluest productions. Wow. And then there's the blue laws, which prohibit selling or buying or selling alcohol on, I think, Sundays. I'm, I'm from Massachusetts. I should know this. I have no, uh, just no idea blue, why that... Yeah. It it dates back to like yeah like Middle English, but no one is able to tell me why that. Well, well. Any etymology experts listening, tweet at us. <laughs> yeah. at blue is the warmest color. <laughs> hashtag hashtag Christmas story. <laughs> hashtag blue is the warmest Christmas color. Uh... Gene Shepard felt that Darren McGavin got the character exactly right. One of the few things Gene Shepard liked about this movie, apparently. He said, I saw the old man as a guy who grew up hustling pool games at the age of 12 and supporting himself at the age of 14. And that was eerily close to Darren McGavin's actual life story. His parents divorced when he was 11 years old and he was placed under the custody of his father, who immediately boarded him with strangers while he worked as a traveling salesman. And McGavin ran away and was subsequently sent to Catholic boarding school, which he ran away from again at the age of 16 and lived as a runaway under a wharf in San Francisco. Good Lord. Director Bob Clark would later say, I love Jack Nicholson, but thank God he didn't end up getting the part because Darren is the old man. Yes, indeed. My favorite detail about this character is that he's notably not one of the three adults in the film that Ralphie mentions the Red Rider BB gun to, but he just got his son the exact Christmas gift he wanted anyway. Which gets back to what I said about the whole, you know, the, the, the grumpy uncle who then on Christmas Day gives the most beautiful touching speech. The whole movie is this kind of terrifying figure that really you don't see a lot of redeeming qualities for. And then the look in his face when Ralphie goes behind the couch or the tree or whatever it is and pulls the present out. Yeah. It's, it's very sweet. It's very, very sweet. One thing that the old man is not is a period-accurate sports fan. In the beginning of the film, he becomes irate after reading in the paper that the White Sox traded Bullfrog. But the White Sox never traded Bill Bullfrog Dietrich. They released him on September 18th, 1946. But the film is ostensibly set in the late 30s or early 40s, which would make that sports pronouncement six years anachronistic. He also refers to the Chicago Bears as the Terror of the Midway which is not their nickname. It is the Monsters of the Midway. 
There are all sorts of confusing signs about when this movie's supposed to take place. And it makes me wonder if it was intentional just to keep it vague and mm. kind of throw people off the trail. Uh, first, Ralphie's mom mentions a Bears versus Packers game, which happened in 1941. And then there's the Little Orphan Annie decoder pin, which we'll talk more about later, shown in a scene, which is the same model that came out in 1940. And there's a calendar in the Parker family kitchen that has December 1st on a Friday, which took place in 1939. So... Make of that what you will. <laughs> and I don't know if this is going to ruin anyone's enjoyment of the film, but according to the film's shooting script, the old man's name is Frank. That scans. There's been a long rumor that his name is Hal because of the exchange with the neighbor where he says, uh, damn, Hal, you say you won that? He's actually saying damn hell, according to the shooting script. No so. one in history has ever said that. <laughs> damn hell. <laughs> Are their last names ever mentioned in this movie? The Parkers? I don't remember that at all. But while researching this, I kept saying so. that they're the Parker family. I don't know. I, that's a blind spot in my research. Look that up while I read this. Clark saw the actress who plays the boy's mom, Melinda Dillon, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He said that was all he needed to cast her as the mother. That is our second Spielberg alien movie reference. The Parkers is their name? Yes. Tremendous. Frank Parker. You heard it here first. Uh, for the scene in the Chinese restaurant, Chop Suey Palace in Toronto, where that's actually set, her surprise when the duck comes out when the head with its head intact and they all start singing, that was uh, real. Um, they uh, intentionally gave her the wrong script pages that day. So she was baffled, surprised, and anew by all of that <laughs> happening. It's so great. She clearly cannot stop laughing yeah. at it. Well, and then they take out the, the axe and just... Oh, yeah. <laughs> she the screams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can tell that that is not acting. It's like in Titanic when Rose gets in the cold water for the first time and she lets out a yelp that is... that You cannot act that. That was a real sound. Like that yelp when uh, the duck gets its head chopped off. <laughs> Tweet at us at... <laughs> duck getting its head chopped off. Yeah. In the movie, the Chinese restaurant is called the Bowling Chop Suey Palace because there's an old sign for bowling out front with the W burnt out. Uh, <laughs> this came from a real-life experience by assistant director Ken Ghosh. When he was a child, his mother had accidentally mistaken a bowling alley with a burnt-out W for a Chinese restaurant when driving around looking for a place to eat, which I think is hilarious. I love that. Of Ralphie's mother, Shepard said, she's the kind of woman I figure grew up in a family of four or five sisters and married young. She digs the old man, but also knows he's as dangerous as a snake. Um, Melinda Dillon's so interesting. She began a career as a coat check girl at Second City, the improv comedy theater in Chicago, popularly known as a early breeding ground for SNL. And she would start performing there. She was in the original Broadway production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. She was nominated for a Tony in that, and she got two Academy Award nominations, one for Close Encounters and again for playing opposite Paul Newman in Absence of Malice. And she is just like not as much of a household name as you would really think considering all of these things, all of these roles that she's been in. And now for the rest. Zach Ward, who plays the yellow-eyed bully Scott Farkas and his little toady, Grover Dill, played by Yano Anaya, Originally had each other parts, i.e. Dill was the bully and Farkas the toady, which would have been truer to Shepard's book and the stories. But when they got onto set, Bob Clark took one look at them and swapped them and was like, you get his lines and you get his lines. I mean, it was the joke is, supposed to be that the bully was tiny? I mean, it's a visual I gag. Think so. Why would that be in a book? Like, Yeah. It, hmm. um, <laughs> Anaya's a great bit about auditioning for Bob Clark. He goes, I went into audition and he asked me to do two crazy things. 
So first, I acted like a rock star. I was into Van Halen then. And then for the second crazy thing, I farted really loud. <laughs> he told this to Vanity Fair, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Zach Ward wins today's lawsuit category. Uh, That's the he Scott Fuckus guy. That's Scott Scott. Farkas. Stop, I can't say his name. Is that, it's got to intentionally be that uh, What close. the hell kind of a name is Scott? Scott? I mean, it's a perfect name yeah, for him, for the character, yeah. He had yellow Again, this eyes. guy, Gene Shepard's got a, got a gift for, for titles and names. Um, Zach Ward sued Warner Brothers and a toy company in 2011 uh, for an action figure of his character from the movie. Uh, dropping the suit in 2012 when it was revealed that A, he was never entitled to merchandising rights in the first place because of a, a clause in his contract when he signed it, and B, the toy used a generic face in its design going back to 2006. So then, that same year, he tried to sue them again uh, over a Christmas Story board game, playing cards, and calendar uh, that he had been presented with two years prior at the annual Christmas Story charity fundraising convention in Cleveland. Uh, that suit was quickly settled, but there are some astoundingly mean things that uh, the toy company Nika Neka said about him in the press. Um, which like yeah. what? Uh, they call him a baby or something. I, hang on. I mean, uh, this kid's story is devastating. He tells the story in a twentieth uh, anniversary mini documentary about the making of a Christmas Story, and he was, I guess, making money for his single mom as a child actor, and he paid for everything in the household. And one year for Christmas, she took him to the mall, and he had to pick out a sweater that he paid for, and then she wrapped Ugh. it up and gave it to him for Christmas, which is so sad. Jesus. Uh, yes, Nika, uh, Neka, whatever, however you pronounce it, they... Um Call it a long, exceedingly silly case by a plaintiff who had a bit role as a 13-year-old in the well-known 1983 film. And then they said he has grown up to become a professional plaintiff. Ouch. Yeah, murdered. Murdered in court filings by a Damn. company, by a, by a toy company. Uh, well, now we got to talk about Flick, who's played by Scott Schwartz. He's the, I, I mean, he will forever be the kid who got his tongue stuck to a pole. Yeah. What else needed to know? Yeah. Uh, the said tongue stuck to a flagpole scene was created with a plastic pole that they drilled a tiny hole into, which is rigged up to a vacuum so that it would actually suction people's tongues into this little hole in the pole. And it was popular with the boys on the set, and they all took turns sticking their tongue into the air hole. They hit their tongues if they're lucky. Uh, Scott Schwartz, the kid who played Flick, had to shoot the scene twice after they accidentally underdeveloped the film on the first shoot. And at one point, director Bob Clark, who was so annoyed with Flick's constant pranking on the set, called lunch while the suction was on, leaving him stuck there. <laughs> so all the scenes of him, like when the teacher looks out the classroom window and he's just like flailing yep. around with his Just B-roll. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> well, this was because uh, they they brought all the, Clark bought all these kids up to Canada and, and basically stuck, and, and, and Cleveland, they were roomed in a hotel in the, um, in the Stauffer's Hotel in downtown Cleveland for the shoot. And he brought them up to Canada so that they could get this, you know, the classic Cool Hand Luke, a uh, bunch of guys, rowdy guys chemistry. Um, and they would rehearse at his home in New Bedford. Um, and so, like I said, most of them were staying in this hotel together and being a bunch of 10 to 14 year old boys, they got up into all these shenanigans, like 
chucking water balloons and and sodden rolls of toilet paper out of the windows of the top floors, uh, would send hundreds of dollars of delivery food to people in the middle of the night. They would ding-dong ditch people pretending to be housekeepers. Uh, And Schwartz, who was 14, he was the oldest of all of them and had kind of a, he was a bit of a movie veteran. He'd been on The Toy with Richard Pryor and Jackie Gleason. And he was the ringleader, which is why Clark couldn't stand him by the time they went to film that scene. <laughs> Called I lunch with the kid's tongue suctioned to a prop pole. <laughs> That's got to go down in the annals of mean treating kids poorly in films. Uh, I can't believe it wasn't Scott Farkas as the, as the, the lead bully on yeah. the film. Wow. His braces are one of the many anachronisms in this film, presumably because he actually had them and they were not going to like pry them off his teeth just to ensure <laughs> period accuracy. Uh, I didn't know that. That's a whole Wikipedia thing that <laughs> there's a lot I, of I them. would go down. There's a lot of them. Uh, little weird date things. Uh, I think Mental Floss has it. Uh Gene Shepard and his wife have a cameo as the couple in the Higby's department store, and Bob Clark is the aforementioned Swede, the family's neighbor. Um, Shepard read the film's narration off screen so that Billingsley could act to it in real time, but he and Clark had a mildly contentious relationship while shooting. Apparently, Shepard was constantly looking over Clark's shoulder and just making suggestions, uh, and then would approach the actors after he yelled cut. He would come up to Billingsley and be like, Ralphie's really like this. And then Clark would come back onto the set and be like, Gene, get away from the actors. <laughs> but they, because this film was made on a very tight budget, Clark had tightly storyboarded like every shot in it. And so he didn't have a lot of time for, for Shepard to be, you know, telling kids, oh, you should do it again this way. Like, you know, more true to what Ralphie was actually like. And then so Clark finally just barred him from that. Shepard retired to Sanibel Island on Florida's Gulf Coast and passed away in 1999, two years after Turner Broadcasting began its tradition of the 24-hour Christmas Story Marathon. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the Body app and just follow along day by day. 
before most people are even out of bed. I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Jordan, tell us about the leg lamp. Yes, this would not be an episode of TMI if we didn't go extremely in-depth on the major award, <laughs> the leg lamp. Jordan's It Belongs in a Museum segment. Yes. We, need theme. we, gotta, we gotta write a theme song for that so we can throw to it. <laughs> I'm gonna get on that. Can we hire John Williams for that? Jamie, <laughs> Jamie, get... Friend of the pod, Paul Williams, to write Jordan's yeah. It Belongs in a Museum segment. <laughs> the leg lamp was first described in the 1966 Gene Shepard short story, My Old Man and the Lascivious Special Award that Heralded the Birth of Pop Art. It's the title <laughs> of the short story. Incredible. Um, and it actually appeared on screen before A Christmas Story in the PBS film the Phantom of the Open Hearth, which was broadcast in 1976. I'm guessing that was a Gene Shepard story that was done for PBS, or it had to have been. Yeah, it was PBS. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it was a Gene Shepard story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Huh. Uh, Gene Shepard was inspired to create the leg lamp by old print ads for the soft drink Knee High, which featured a woman's... I can't remember if it's one or two. I think just one leg from the skirt down and the very simple copy, drink knee-high quality beverages. <laughs> I looked that up online. You're right. It's it's the leg it's lamp. It's just it's the crazy leg, yeah. To see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the design of the leg lamp for A Christmas Story is the work of the production designer Ruben Freed. And he told Cleveland Magazine in 2009, I immediately thought of something I had seen in my mother's front room, which was a... <laughs> Okay, which <laughs> grew up in a New Orleans brothel, uh, which was sort of, which, which was sort of a gold-colored silk lampshade pleated with fringe around it. I thought of it immediately and never thought of anything else. Hmm. I assume he means just while designing this leg lamp, uh, just that classic big ugly shape. And he drew a couple of quick sketches that Gene Shepard approved immediately, and they cast a real woman's leg to use for the design. It's like plaster cast, like Cynthia plaster caster, but PG thirteen. If you or a loved one was cast for the design of the leg lamp, <laughs> you may be entitled to residuals from Ted Turner. Please get, t- please get in contact. Scott fuck a Seuss. 
Oh, poor Zach Ward. <laughs> With your Dickensian oh, life. Here we are just piling on. <laughs> Clark didn't let any of the boys on the set see the lamp until they were shooting, so Ralphie's glazed-eyed stare as his hand glides up the lamp was real. <laughs> Was that his genuine reaction? To yeah, that? Like, again, just like Cool Hand Luke when they didn't let the when they didn't tell anyone uh, the woman yeah. was going to be on the set. They were just all like right. let all these horn dog preteen boys see this fishnet clad leg lamp. <laughs> you get Peter well, Billingsley's I, genuine reaction of awe. Well, now I feel bad because my dad, as a joke, got me a, a leg lamp. A sli- I think like a half size one mm-hmm. for Christmas one year, and I had it in my dorm because mm. I thought it was a goofy looking thing. <laughs> And now I worry about the impression it gave off. I just thought it looked surreal. I thought I, I thought it was like, like a of, man ray thing. The birth of pop art. Oh yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. R. D. Rob, who played uh, Schwartz on the on the DVD, said, "I loved the leg lamp. That thing was sexy as hell." <laughs> Inventors Digest, in their feature on the leg lamp, notes that it is protected by federal trademark registration number three three six four five four two. With a separate registration for a leg lamp Christmas tree ornament, which I believe we do have in our home. Mm. Um, three lamps were made for the movie, but none of them exist today. Jordan, I'm so sorry. God, I know. There were reports that all three were broken as part of filming, but a Canadian blog called Retro Festive wrote that one did survive and sat unused for years in the window of Martin Malavoir's special effects shop in Toronto. I have no idea what any of those words mean. It was eventually discarded in the early 90s. Oh, belongs in a museum. <laughs> and to celebrate A Christmas Story's 30th anniversary in 2013, in Cleveland's roles, its filming location, Terminal Tower in Cleveland's public square was turned into a giant leg lamp, complete with red garter. I need to see that. Mm. Uh, In less sexy prop categories, the Little Orphan Annie Dakota ring featured in the movie is the 1940 model, another thing that helps kind of establish when the film is set. Uh, The design for that Dakota originally featured the words Radio Orphan Annie's SS and two crossed skeleton keys. Now, why could that have been a poor decision in the 1930s? I wonder. Well, the SS did stand for Secret Society, but uh, it took them until 1939 to remove... The words SS with a, 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 a striking logo from a children's toy. I mean, the, the U.S. didn't enter World War II in the December 41, and maybe it was just something that, that the connotation wasn't as strong mm, yet, maybe. Mm, I don't know. Mm. Well, the SS was you founded the- in 1925, Jordan, which I yeah. only looked up to rebut your fact. So, <laughs> sucks to your ass, Mar. I'm shocked I haven't hit you with that one yet. That's one of my favorite no context disses. Lord of the Flies, ladies and gentlemen. Friend of the pod, the Lord of the Flies. Popularity of A Christmas Story has caused some people to believe that the secret messages at the end of the Orphan Annie radio shows, the first late afternoon children's serial based on the comic strip by Hal Gray, existed to promote Ovaltine. That is not strictly true. The secret messages that the children would decode were previews of the next week's adventure. But the guy who was the announcer for the show, Pierre Andre, would, however, ramble on at least twice per show about Ovaltine, sometimes for up to three minutes, which was a big chunk of time for a 15-minute show. And now for all of those toy gun completists out there, yes, sadly, while the 
Red Rider model BB gun was manufactured in Plymouth, Michigan by the Daisy Company beginning in 1940. It never existed in real life as it does in the film. The company's Buck Jones model did have a compass and sundial in the stock, but those features were not included in the Red Rider model. And further, since Peter Billingsley was left-handed, the compass and sundial were placed on the opposite side of the stock that they would have been in the actual toy, because the world is not kind to the left-handed. Oh, he ha- he still has that. He has that prop. I mentioned that earlier. I have goldfish memory. According to Stan Cole, the film's editor, MGM wanted A Christmas Story cut down to 90 minutes so it could be turned around in a tight two-hour showing window in theaters. Consequently, several scenes were cut from the film, among them fantasy scenes in which Ralphie rescues Flash Gordon from Ming the Merciless on the planet Mongo, and another one where he rescues Santa from Black Bart's gang. Um, And there are photos of Ralphie in that cowboy costume standing next to a dude playing Flash Gordon. They're really, it's really wild. The film, the, the scenes don't exist anymore, but in the credits to the film, you can see people credited as Flash Gordon and Ming the Merciless. So that's why those are in there was because those were shot and then cut. The film opened the week before Thanksgiving and according to Clark doubled its business over the long weekend. Roger Ebert, in his review, wrote, My guess is either nobody will go to see it or millions of people will go to see it. (laughs) Unfortunately, the former was right. The film was in theaters for basically half of November and half of December, but MGM pulled it just in time for Christmas, which will mention that they were running out of money by the mid-80s. Business decisions like that, probably a reason why. Uh, It took a few years for the film to become a hit. It first appeared on television on HBO, (laughs) friend of the pod, HBO, in 1985, which was around the same time it was released on VHS. And it really took off with the advent of home video and home video bootlegging. People discovered it and began sharing it and buying it and ritually watching it. And it just sort of steadily grew, Peter Billingsley told Vanity Fair. Coincidentally... Around this time, MGM was falling apart and sold its film library to Ted Turner in 1986 to help pay its debts, which is how A Christmas Story ended up on Turner's Superstation cable channel, where it was his idea to run it annually. He might have been taking inspiration from another MGM hit, The Wizard of Oz, for which CBS paid $225,000 for the rights to rebroadcast yearly, which they did from 1959 to 1991. Is that a thing growing up in your household? I definitely remember, like, my parents and relatives all being like, and once a year we would gather around the cathode ray to watch a Wizard of Oz. I think it was more the sound of music in my house. Oh yeah, that uh, too. Yeah. yeah, and then that I remember too. Growing up, I mean, that's why it's like a de facto Christmas movie now is that they just needed to mm. fill up hours of programming when people were right. off for the holidays. But when Turner Broadcasting merged with Time Warner in 1997, they began running the film on its now famous continuous 24-hour loop from Christmas Eve through Christmas Day. On TNT, Turner Network Television, in 2004, it moved to TBS. It's also on HBO Max. So he actually says, F-. <laughs> You get a little more of the leg lamp, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> uh, ironically, one person uncomfortable with the film aging into a beloved Christmas tradition was Gene Shepard, who, as you mentioned earlier, <laughs> hates everything. Uh, he sought to puncture the very notion of nostalgia with his stories, so I guess it makes sense why he wouldn't be all that thrilled with the movie version of one of his stories becoming a, a, a golden holiday standard. 
He originally envisioned the Christmas story as, quote, Dickens's Christmas Carol as retold by Scrooge. <laughs> Amazing. Again, a quote machine. And consequently disavowed the film version. Although, fun point of fact, the sign that Ralphie's BB ricochets off of to break his glasses reads Golden Age, which you say is a very nice visual symbol about the dangers of nostalgia. Looking backwards at the Golden Age, it can blind you. Mm-hmm. Huh? Oh, mm-hmm. oh that, that's very good. Apparently, it's a soda company sign. Hmm. A regional Cleveland area soft drink company. That is our second obscure soft drink reference of this <laughs> episode. Know. Friend of the pod, obscure regional soft drink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, consider, for example, this quote that Gene Shepard gave to Q Magazine back in 1961. Childhood seems good in retrospect because we're not yet aware of the basic truth that we're all losers, that we're all destined to die, and death is a defeat. (laughs) Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) Just picturing Santa saying that as he's kicking Ralphie down the slide. (laughs) Yeah. Ho, ho, ho. (laughs) Death is a defeat. Uh, Supposedly, Gene Shepard really, really didn't like the show The Wonder Years, which premiered in 1988, just after A Christmas Story became popular. Uh, Wonder Years co-creator Carol Black told New York Magazine, we played around with writing a screenplay that used narration as a device. We started to think that there was a lot of potential fun in that, because you can really play with the contrast between the narrator's point of view and what the characters are doing, and you can go inside their head and expose what they're really thinking when they're saying something different. And then we just sort of jumped from there to thinking that effect is accentuated when you have an adult narrator looking back on childhood. Again, these are all the things that goes into Kevin Arnold's, uh, Daniel Stern's voiceover for Kevin Arnold. Yeah, so you're a big Wonder Years guy. Do you, do you, have you heard this about this before? Yeah, I I dimly remember hearing this. I think there's like an A&E biography about the show, The Wonder Years, and they talk Mm -hmm. about a Christmas story kind of being in the air and being one of the things that was a, uh, was an influence on it. Uh, Peter Billingsley, even appeared in the final two episodes as one of Kevin's roommates on the Wonder Years. Oh yeah, that's right. He goes to work at like a summer camp or something to try to, or like a a footloose style, not footloose, yeah, footloose style like (laughs) resort or something because Winnie goes and works there. Oh yeah, that was sad. Uh, according to Excelsior, you fathead, the art and enigma of Gene Shepard, the Gene Shepard biography you mentioned earlier, uh, <laughs> Shepard singled out the Wonder Years along with Garrison Keillor as work that he thought heavily cribbed his style. And yeah, I can really see how Kevin Arnold's dad, Jack, on the Wonder Years is really similar to the scary dad on A Christmas Story. That makes a lot of sense. But let us look on to happier things, which is namely this beloved movie's legacy. Peter Billingsley gave this great quote to Vanity Fair that I really love. He says, I don't know if it was the first, but it was certainly one of the best embodiments of a real family. There's tension. There's some fear of the father. There's anxiety in the household. There's very much a sibling battle. There's a mother trying to hold things together and hold her place. There's probably financial trouble. The father's do-it-yourself aspect of the household. Yet through all that, there's a genuine sense of love and protection within the house. And yet the words, I love you, are never uttered in the movie. Still, he says, one of the last shots is just that simple gesture of the father touching the mother for the first time in the movie. And in that moment, it says all you need to know about their relationship. It tells you how that guy loves her, he's there for her, and that's it. I want to go out on this quote. Joan Didion famously wrote in a line that could have summed up Gene Shepard's entire life, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. 
The actor playing the old man himself, Darren McGavin, unintentionally hit on a parallel with that in an interview that he gave to the Plains Dealer. Asked about a Christmas story, the reporter said McGavin fell silent and lowered his head before looking up, smiling, and saying simply, it will live. And it will. Our feelings about the stories we tell ourselves can change, sometimes for the better, sometimes not, but they will live. And that is all anyone can hope for. That and a Red Rider BB gun. Folks, this has been Too Much Information. Thank you for listening. I'm Alex Hagel. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.